you really have to know what's going on in your farms before you can pick a vaccine. And so just to say, hey, we had a really bad respiratory break last month and this is the virus we got. I want to make a virus out of this. I want to make a vaccine out of this virus that we got last month. That's a little bit dangerous because, yes, it caused problems there, but that might have been a one-off problem. And so you really have to do the diligence and that targeted surveillance, just like uh, Dr. Pittman described, that constant wean pig surveillance to see what's going on in the sow farms and how is it going to spread throughout the system. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman Animal Nutrition. Visit EASTMAN.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Marie Colhane, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Jeremy Pittman, who's a veterinarian at Smithfield Foods. Hello, both of you. How are you doing today? Good. Just fine. Thank you. Great. Good. Well, glad to have you both on today. Um, I realize that some of our audience may not be familiar with one or both of you. And so before we start, I'm going to have you do a brief introduction of yourself, and then we'll jump into our topic today. So um, Marie, we'll have you start first. Oh, well, thanks. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting uh, Jeremy and me today. Um, We're very passionate about flu and love to share it. Um, But I'm a veterinarian, and I've been one for over two decades. And most of that time, I've worked with pigs. And I started with PIC. Uh, when I first graduated from vet school, and then I came back to the University of Minnesota, and I did a pathology residency and my PhD. Um, my PhD was on influenza virus, and um, I took that interest and uh, worked as a diagnostician in the veterinary diagnostic lab for a year, really focusing on respiratory pathology. And then after about 15 years in the veterinary diagnostic lab, I moved over to just doing influenza virus work for all species, turkeys, chickens, humans, pigs, uh, outreach and research around that. And then that got into me me into uh, emergency response. And I've been doing that for the last eight years, but all at the University of Minnesota. But influenza is still something that, you know, I really like to work with and uh, especially working with uh, veterinarians out there in the farms like Jeremy. You're perfect. Well, thank you for that introduction. Jeremy, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Yeah, um, Jerry Pittman. I'm a veterinarian with Smithfield Hog Production. I've uh, been here since 
graduated in 2004 from North Carolina State University and took a job here. I've been here ever since, even though my roles have kind of changed over time. But um, I have some other responsibilities and represent the industry in other ways and get, get tied into a lot of different things other than just uh, in the barn pick production stuff. So, but um, Ray and I have worked for many years specifically on the topic of flu and, and other diseases too, but flu seems to be the one that brings us together a lot um, and have just done a lot of field projects and surveillance programs and just trying to continue to understand this pathogen. Perfect. Well, thank you. And as you both alluded to, our conversation today really is going to focus around influenza and what we're seeing in the field, uh, what we're seeing maybe coming down the pipeline, how is it changing, uh, et cetera. Um, and so I think where we'll start is actually I'll have Jeremy kind of start in with what are we seeing in the field today? And then Marie, we'll have you jump in and maybe talk a little bit about how that's changed. So where have we been, where are we at now, where do we think it might go? So Jeremy, we'll have you start first. Yeah, I think just in general, I'll talk about flu. I mean, obviously, I, for me, it's probably one of the more frustrating diseases we deal with and sometimes even more frustrating than PERS, um, even though it's it's probably sacrilegious to say that. But and, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But in general, we, you know, we still kind of see the historic wintertime spikes of influenza that blow through laterally into grow finished populations. And that's usually what gets people talking about flu again in the course of a year. But at the same time, we also do a lot of surveillance for influenza throughout the year based on information that we've captured over over the years, uh, some additional projects we've done to understand. And it's and it's what uh, the professors and those researchers have been telling us all along is it's yes, there's some seasonal influence to it, but we find flu all throughout the year. Uh, and sometimes it's worse, and sometimes it depends on co-infections, comorbidities, and uh, other challenges that we have that become more of a challenge in uh, the winter time, or when we start, you know, putting up curtains and shutting down ventilation, we see a little bit more challenge with it. Plus, we have some other factors that that fall into that because of the zoonotic component of it. We have the human factor, we have the the bird factor. Well, that's uh, poultry, particularly turkeys, in a lot of our areas, but also, um, you know, wildfowl. So, so that's part of the complexity that I alluded to earlier that makes it a little bit more frustrating than um, than something like PERS. But, you know, it's it would be one of our big four diseases that we would talk about that would have respiratory challenges to it, morbidity, uh, impacts on mortality, average daily gain, feed conversion, those things that are big KPIs for our business. And because we're we have pigs in just about every location in the U.S. where where pigs are raised. We see a pretty big diversity in our isolates as well, right? We see geographical influences of that, that. I'm sure we'll talk about, and so you know stuff that happens kind of in that North Carolina component. We've got a bunch of pigs that are in Iowa, grow finished pigs in Iowa that we see that lateral introduction um, and pressure in that area, and then we have sow bases scattered elsewhere throughout the Midwest and the, the far west. So um, definitely much more of a of a, a seasonal buzzword. When we get into the fall and, and winter times, but we know that we see challenges with influenza throughout the entire year. Yeah, so I think that's a good a good start to that conversation. And, and Marie, so we've been following flu for years, and, and obviously some of our listeners can probably relate to it when we talk about humans and flu strains changing from year to year. But maybe talk a little bit more on what Jeremy alluded to with isolates. How are these strains changing? And, you know, how is this varying by geography? He mentioned it, but maybe give a little bit more detail there. Yeah, I think the the important way that influenza changes is 
when it's a virus that's present every day, every month, every year, it's obviously a successful virus that manages to replicate a lot of itself, um, but not kill its host. And so as a virus continues to live and replicate and and transmit from pig to pig to pig, it changes and it picks up fitness. Um, It also can change and, and, and get weaker, um, but we don't see those. Um, so if a virus change and picks up fitness gets stronger, then we see that virus start to dominate in a region. And then because we move our pigs throughout the United States and really uh, a lot of movement throughout North America, right? Canadian pigs coming to um, the U.S., U.S. Um, hogs going to Mexico, Mexican slaughter pigs coming to the U.S. sometimes um, and things like that. Um, then we see um, shifts, and it's basically always tied back to pig flow. In influenza virus, for birds, we look at influenza viruses by the flyways, right? So there's different influenza viruses in the Pacific flyway on the West Coast versus the um, Eastern flyway, the Atlantic flyway, you know, here on the Atlantic Ocean. And we used to call it the, the pig flyways, right? So they would actually be pigs on the highway, and that's how they change. Um so we see those gradual changes every time that are really related to pig movements. But I would say every three to five years, we see a big change. And it's usually a virus that's new to the pig world. Either it picked up a gene from human influenza viruses or it picked up a gene in the influenza virus from a bird virus. And then it starts to spread into areas that have never seen that type of virus before. Um, and I think that happens about every three to five years. And it really does kind of follow uh, human seasonal influenza. So in, in humans flu years, you know, this year is a particularly bad flu year, 2022, 2023. And the last really bad flu year was 2018, 19. Um, so it's about this every three to five year cycle. Um, and epidemiologists are trying to figure out that, but we, we kind of follow that with pigs too. And we finally have enough data, um, thanks to, um, the USCA voluntary influenza surveillance program that's been going on since 2009. We finally have enough data to, to really push that and understand it a lot better is how much is it changing. And then that's just about all the research and then all the applied stuff on the farms as well. <laughs> is there any way to know? You, you talked about the wildlife population and, and their migratory patterns and we've talked about humans. Is there any way to know which group is more particularly responsible for those shifts? Are we more concerned about humans causing this the shift in the pig flu or, or birds, or is it pretty mixed or we really just don't know? I think we all can share the blame. I think pigs contribute to the diversity of influenza virus and birds and humans. And so we kind of, we call that uh, in the flu research world, the influenza triad, this this constant circulation between pigs and humans and, and poultry. Um, and, it, and, and they work together like that. Um, I would say the biggest drivers of change, and there's some great publications out there by Martha Nelson and Amy Vincent, show that it's the human infections into pigs that cause the greatest amount of change. And then way back um, in the 1990s, when influenza really exploded through the United States, right when we first graduated um, in 1998, that influenza virus acquired some avian genes. Um, So... I keep saying genes. Let me back up a little bit. So we don't want to become virologists here, but we have to know a little bit about influenza to understand this conversation. So influenza virus is a virus and it's got eight separate genes inside of it. And those eight genes, I kind of think of them like cards in a deck, 
And so when two influenza viruses get into the same cell and they replicate, then they shuffle the deck of cards. They shuffle their genes sometimes and they come out. And the virus that comes out is the one that has the best combination. It's the one that has the winning hand. Um, and so one of the winning hands was when our viruses in 98 picked up influenza genes from birds and the two genes that make more virus. They're called the polymerase genes, the virus machinery. They really started to change how our viruses replicated and changed. And since 1998, the influenza world's been different um, for pigs. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. some of that is because we're able to find it better with advanced diagnostic tests and sequencing and things like that. But a lot of it is truly due to the virus itself. Uh-huh. Well, and Jeremy, you mentioned surveillance work, and I think that kind of ties into what Maria is saying. And some of our audience may not quite understand what you mean when you say surveillance work. So when you're doing regular surveillance, what does that look like for you? Yeah, and I, I think there's really two aspects of surveillance when we think about influenza. There's there's what I think most people are probably doing, which is more of a passive surveillance. So I, um, I'm out and I'm taking you know, diagnostic samples because I have unhealthy pigs, right? So there's there's tissue samples or oral fluids or nasal swabs or something. I, I'm going out and investigating a concern and I find influenza and then I maybe do additional testing sequence and virus isolation on that, that sample. And I, I feel like that's a little bit more passive. That's what I would call passive surveillance. And then the other side of that would be more active surveillance and some of our operations have gone to that, particularly at the South Farm and we can talk about um sort of where we would see a lot of influenza circulating. But but we would go into the sow farm and do active surveillance, particularly on the lean pig population or to be weaned pigs, to understand what may be coming out of that sow farm. And, and so that's a routine. Maybe it's monthly, maybe it's quarterly, but it's some sort of a routine sampling that we would do in that population to understand, do I have influenza circulation in, in that sow farm? And really the lean pig being a, a monitor of that entire breeding herd population. And knowing something about that pig before it goes downstream into the nursery or fish, similar to what we do, or a lot of people would do for PERS virus or other diseases. And so that would be more of an active surveillance. You could do that at any stage of production. Um, some places will do that geographically where they know they have, you know, where flu seems to emerge in a certain area within the business or within the state. Maybe there's a couple of counties where there's, it seems that that's where the new flu always pops up. And so you can do some some active surveillance amongst those farms, whether there's nurseries or finishers. And and it gives you a little bit better sense of what's circulating in a geographical area or within a business or um, maybe even in a production flow or pyramid. And so I, I think those two different ways, more people are probably doing passive surveillance in general for influenza. Um, I think those that are maybe trying to understand how it works in the in the pyramid system. Maybe it's a multiplication pyramid aspect of it, and they're trying to understand what, what influenza viruses they have that may be feeding into their commercial production. That's much more of an active surveillance piece. Uh-huh. And you mentioned earlier that you know, it's no longer seasonal. I, I would think for a long time we did. We talked about it being seasonal. The reality of it is, is that it is year-round. And so how do you as a production group make that decision on how to control flu. Right? We're not going to eliminate flu. So how do you control it throughout your, your system? Yeah, there's multiple different strategies. I think in general, our system has focused on controlling and protecting the breeding herd and try to minimize the amount of influenza that's coming out as the wean pig and, and the potential impacts it would have at a breeding herd. There's less control downstream, partly because we, we struggle with how do we properly um, vaccinate those growing pigs with all of the challenges we have relative to 
maternal immunity and viral circulation already and getting in front of that um, that infection. Co-mingling is, is pretty common or moving the pigs from one location to another location, trying to get them protected for the influenza and predict that, that those pigs may see is, is just frustrating. And a lot of people just throw up their hands when, when they try and vaccinate growing pigs. So our strategy has basically been to to put that focus on the sow herd, the breeding population, and the replacement females that are coming into those breeding populations. And using that surveillance to basically target uh, what are the main circulating influences that would be in the production system or geographical region, depending on the, the part of our business. And historically, we have gone back and forth between commercial vaccines and autogenous vaccines to achieve that. In some locations, we would use a combination of both, depending on what circulating not just within our surveillance methods, but also what's in those geographical areas as well, right? What the, what the potential pressure is. And we do, we kind of evaluate those maybe twice a year. Usually we're only updating vaccine um, once going into the fall, and that will kind of be our seasonal vaccination for the system. Balancing, you know, accommodate, we're not making 50 different autogenous vaccines when we do that. We're kind of, you know, geographically making one that makes sense and putting multiple isolates in it to give our best coverage similar to the human model, but not as, not as well developed, I don't believe. Um, and, and we just, we try to make that, that best guess. And then as we see new isolates pop up that become, or what we feel become important, whether that's a, a significant genetic change or how, that we don't feel there's going to be homology in the previous vaccines, or maybe it's affecting a part of our system that we know is going to rapidly spread throughout. So maybe we have a group of multiplication farms that get affected. And we know that's going to be coming down with the gilts. And so we're going to have a, lar- a large number of pigs and or sows potentially affected by that isolate. We may make a one-off vaccine to get into that population quickly. Um, if at times right, we will add or replace a, a previous isolate um, with that new isolate that's in. And a lot of that is through a combination of surveillance and working with Marie on what she's seeing in the geographical areas. And then um, to her her specialty of looking at uh, key antigenic site differences and which ones we feel we need to put in or we can swap out with one of them. So it's it's relatively complex and it happens in the span of about um, an hour on the phone after we send a bunch of information, right? And you just have to make that decision and then you go on with it, you commit to a bunch of doses and and you basically see how um, how well of a decision you made for the next six months. And it's still... You know, I, in previous talks on influenza, it's kind of like a blind monkey throwing a dart at a dartboard. That's kind of how we select isolates. We've gotten a little bit better at that, but it, it's still a, kind of flipping a coin, right? And you just, um, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Yeah, and you that was actually my next question. I wrote a note while Marie was talking about isolates and prediction. And so you were talking about collecting these samples on surveillance and sending them in. And so Marie... How do you help make those decisions um, going forward for for producers when they're looking at multiple isolates and trying to decide what vaccines to use in their programs? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I abide by my veterinary oath, which is do no harm, right? So I, I do take the time. And you really have to know what's going on in your farms before you can pick a vaccine. And so just to say, hey, we had a really bad respiratory break last month and this is the virus we got. I want to make a virus out of this. I want to make a vaccine out of this virus that we got last month. That's a little bit dangerous because yes, it caused problems there, but that might have been a one-off problem. And so you really have to do the diligence 
and that targeted surveillance, just like uh, Dr. Pittman described, that constant wean pig surveillance to see what's going on in the sow farms and how is it going to spread throughout the system. And then how is it compared to every to the available isolates in the region um, or in the United States um, and things like that. So first of all, we we pick for isolates when there's um, for vaccination when there's a there's information there. Once there's information there, then you can start to see which viruses are occurring most often or dominant. It's not really prevalence. Uh, it's sometimes more incidence. And um, I'm not a mathematical modeler. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I work with some great ones. Um, and one of the great uh, modelers and bioinformaticists I work with is Tavis Anderson. He's in the Vincent Lab, the Baker Lab at the USDA ARS. And the Anderson Baker Labs, um, they have started to look at predictions uh, guided by what Jeremy said, um, what they do for for humans to try to say this is the predominant virus or the dominant we're seeing the virus we're seeing more often. We should make a vaccine against this one because it keeps showing up. Um, so that's one of the ways. The other thing we do um, is then make sure that it's um, going to possibly work against the viruses in all the farms that might be affected by this vaccine or might use this vaccine. And then if those viruses, those farms using this vaccine are going to get pressure from the region around them, let's say that they're in a hog dense area, um, how similar is the vaccine strain to the viruses around that farm? And so when I talk about similarity, this is probably what you're getting at. Um, again, don't want to be virologists, but there's proteins that stick out on the surface of the influenza viruses. One of it's the hemagglutinin, the H, and the other is the neuraminidase, the N. Most of the immune response, the pig says, I'm going to fight you virus, is against that H. And so we look at all the H1s, which are very common in pigs, and all the H3s that are very common in pigs. And we say, we look at the percent similarity of the H1 uh, protein from one virus versus the uh, vaccine virus. And we say, how similar are they? We don't really know the cutoff. We tend to keep it at 95% or higher and say, well, if this um, H from this virus is greater than 95% similarity, then this vaccine should probably work against it because they, they share a lot of similarity. And then we go from there. We also look at the neuraminidases. Um, so again, the Baker Lab at the USDA ARS has done a lot of work on neuraminidases now as well. And they've shown that if you don't have a neuraminidase match, so let's say your vaccine has an H1N1 and your virus you're fighting is an H1N2, that's not a good match. The H1s may look really close, but if they don't match in the N, you can have some problems. And so uh, trying to match those Ns as well. Um, and then it's not just looking at the overall protein similarity in that H or that N, but there seems to be key sites um, in the proteins that are presented to the immune system that if those are different, then the vaccine might not work as well against the virus. And so then we hone in on key antigenic sites. And again, um, there is some automation to this. I still do it by hand, but again, uh, Tavis Anderson in the Baker Lab at USDA has has automated this process in an open coding platform um, called OctoFlu um, in his Flu Crew uh, a coding website. And um, we all make it smart enough to do that. But right now it's a lot of putting it in the farms and seeing what works and then coming back and, and adjusting as we can. 
Um, there are people that automate it. Certainly there's a lot of good brains out there and I still muscle through it and, and, and work with. The biggest thing I can tell is if the vaccine's working or not is if we do that follow-up, right? Are the pigs coughing less? Is the weight gain going up? Are there less complaints from the nursery um, staff? Um, and then is virus not detectable anymore or, or less of a problem? So then I know despite having not all the perfect genetic information or immunological information or those fine-tuned things, did the virus satisfy the needs of the people that were using it? Yeah, very good. Well, um, one of the things I'd like for both of you to maybe kind of talk on and, and kind of summarize a bit too um, would be, you know, what are some tips, suggestions that you would have for producers today that are trying to make these decisions? So from production and, and from um, university standpoints, what are some things they should be considering in terms of, of influenza control and management today? I'll start. I think I think the biggest thing and, and one of the lessons that I learned and I think our group learned after some some big surveillance projects that we did several years ago was um, I think a lot of us were taken back by how much influenza was circulating in the Fahrenheit without clinical disease. And so it's pretty easy to to walk through a Fahrenheit and maybe not hear a lot of call from pigs and go, well, I don't have a flu problem here. And then when you actually do the testing, yeah, it's there. And maybe it's being masked by the maternal immunity, but but understanding what your flu pressure is, I mean, you know, just to stand up and admit, yes, I have flu and I have a problem kind of deal, I think is a lot of people just don't know if you ask them. And it, and it's not just the sow farm, it's the, the replacement females that are coming in, particularly in a large system where maybe you're managing that gill population or or even in um, in some locations where if you're doing a replacement gill program, they could be coming from three different states, three different regions um, in, in some of these genetic companies and how you're populating. And so you have to understand what the risk of animals coming into the farm is if you're at a sow farm or understanding the status of the pigs. If you're getting them and say at a nursery or wean to finishes, what, what is the flu status? Do I, do I know? Have I done the testing to feel confident? Um, and, and I think that really puts understanding flu, particularly in a, in a system or a region, if you can do that amongst, you know, multiple veterinarians or clinics and share that information, you have a better understanding of what the pressure is and what the challenge is. And, and I think, again, back to better isolate selection for autonomous vaccines, I think what's really important is understanding the population. And, and Marie talked about it as, you know, it's not the one-off. And, and we used to do that years and years ago. It was it was the loudest service person at the loudest farm that had flu, and that's the that's the virus you had to go get because it was it was bad. But but you don't take into account well that farm also had PERS and it also had some other disease, and, and flu was just a piece of that. And if you just do passive surveillance and you just go into your database and say, well, what kind of flus did I see this last year? Unfortunately, you say, well, this flu showed up a lot. But when you really dig into it, if you know your system, what happened was is we got. 10 diagnostics of flu in the same flow of pigs. And that's, you know, that's not relative to the bigger scheme. And so that's what more of an active surveillance across geographically, across forms, across flows, genetic pyramids will help you understand is what do I have out there? What isolates are really in, uh, affecting the highest percentage of pigs in the business or region? And then it gives you a little bit clearer target to go, to go fight, right? Um, and so I think a lot of it is just, just, I would challenge every veterinarian to and farm to better understand what flu, do I have flu, yes or no, confidently, 
And then which flus do I have? And, and, and how does that change over time? It's not a single point in time sampling. It's, it's routine understanding of what influences I have and how do they change within my system. And from a production standpoint is how do the interlocking pieces of production influence that, right? Replacement animals coming in, wean pigs going out, wean pigs coming into a system from another region within the country, commingling of pigs from different regions of the country. How does that influence? And then what's my lateral pressure coming into those locations? So it really complex and can be really frustrating. But it's so interesting, though, Jeremy, if you think back to some of the things that we talked about and you and I would have these discussions and I'll say, well, that's new. I've only seen this in this area of the country before. And you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, we we got a new farm online. We had to move pigs here, or move pigs there. And so you really can with the amount of surveillance that's done when it's targeted, you can find those new introductions more quickly. And so um, I'm an advocate for regular surveillance. And I think personally, I think it could be done quarterly that if you did a really good job going into your um, farm system quarterly and say, okay, it's May, I'm going to do all the wean pigs, I'm going to do the nursery pigs before they go to the finisher, and I'm going to go midway through the finisher and see what influenza viruses are there. Even if they're not coughing, I'm still going to do this. And I think that would be a great way to see what's out there. Um, And so we could pick up those changes more quickly. Yeah, very good. It's time for our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Swine Management to the Next Level, CloudFarms.com, Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge, Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Want to save up to 25% in labor time when cleaning your barns? With MS Top Foam Power, you effectively remove all historical pollution. MS Top Foam Power ensures the surface is perfectly clean and ready for disinfection. Find your dealer at www.msgold.eu. Our time is actually kind of wrapping up. The conversation went really quickly, and I know we could spend more than 30 minutes on this conversation. We have whole conferences and whole days on flu, and so um, I do appreciate the conversation. Uh, But before I let you both go, we'd like to ask our guest speakers a couple of questions. And the first one we like to ask is, what's your go-to swine resource book? So, or swine resource in general. So, Marie, I think I'll start with you this time. Well, I'm sitting in my office today and I'm looking at the one that's got the most beat up. And it's actually the swine nutrition guide. And I'll be the first person to admit that I am not a nutritionist and I don't pretend to play one on TV and I don't understand it. But that is the one that's beat up the most because it has this very practical information about how to raise a pig, what size pan it needs, what air exchange it needs. It's not just a nutrition guide. So it's the swine nutrition guide is the one that I pick up the most. Um, John Patience. Yeah, very interesting, actually. How about you, Jeremy? Yeah, for, I guess, a swine book, I'd say my number one resource is just other colleagues and people are dealing with the challenge. I mean, I still get Tons of information, build little networks depending on what what disease challenge you're dealing with. But from a book, I, st- I still go back to diseases of swine. I, you know, it's one of those where um, it is kind of the reference. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information there. I mean, how many times have you read through a, a full chapter of a particular disease? I, I think um, it's one of those you just kind of you go to when you need one specific piece of information. But 
Um, in addition to that, there's a really good, I got it from Australia. It's called Pathology of the Pig. And it's um, it's a really probably the best pig pathology book with histopath and, and diagnostic um, tips. And it's a really good book um, that I use a lot as a reference. <laughs> Very good. Very unique answers. Um, so the next question is, how about something that maybe you're reading today that's not related to pigs? Marie, do you have a book that you're currently reading? Yeah, I'm doing a book club right now, and um, I've really enjoyed book clubs lately. So if they're a nice way to relax your mind and talk to other people. But the one I'm reading now is called Help is Here by Max Lucado. And it's just been great to have these types of discussions and, and realize where can you get your help from and, and how can you... Uh, build that into your daily life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, help comes in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes we don't recognize it sometimes, I think, too. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? Yeah, I'm a, I go off the reservation. I'm a, a much more, I'm an introvert. So I recharge by being my, by myself with a good cup of coffee and a book. And I read a lot of fiction stuff. That's that's kind of what I do when I'm not worrying about pigs. And so um, a lot of Stephen King, a lot of horror, a lot of sci-fi. Um, right now I'm reading a book. Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child book. Uh, it's just, just you know, nonsense fiction about monsters and and whatever else. So that's my that's my checkout from from what I do the other ten eleven hours of a day. That's okay. You need to do that too. I think when I did this podcast, I think I was reading Harry Potter as my checkout book. So you have to have those once in a while too. That just right, they're they're easy reads, but they get your mind completely elsewhere. Very good. Well, both of you, the last question I like to ask is if you could think of somebody in your life that you define as successful, what would be a key trait about them that you think has allowed them to be successful? So, Marie, we'll start again with you. Well, there's there's two key traits, and I'm thinking of two people, um, but one of them really knows how to work well in a team and to surround themselves with a team. So just to to balance people out um, in their strengths and weaknesses. And then nothing seems too overwhelming, right? Because you know you've got that team member to back you up. If you're having a tough time in this area, you know somebody who has got the, your back. And the other um, trait that I see in a successful person is this person is so curious. In whatever the area of biology, this person has just jumped right in and not knowing anything and then just getting exposed to it. And we're talking all the way in, like a person that's never seen a pig before, getting in a pig farm and figuring it all out and making some really big, important changes uh, for swine and and just curious about every aspect of the earth. So curiosity and ability to work in a team are the two keys to success in my mind. Perfect. Jeremy, how about you? Yeah, and I'm going to... Um... We did talk before this, but Marie's first one, I think about, you know, in our operation, as complex as it is, I mean, nobody can do it alone. And I think those that are successful build that team around them and really put a lot of faith on their team and, you know, allow them, you know, basically, um, I've heard it said before in our operation multiple times, put the right people on the bus and then get out the way, right? Just let them let them do their job, um, surround yourself with, with good people and as a team, you'll be much better. And, and again, because it's, it's so complex, you can't. You can't even imagine trying to be able to know everything and the ins and the outs of this business and the industry. And um, I think if you look across, not even just our industry, but 
it's those that could build an effective team that work well together. It's, you know, who can build the Avengers, who can build the Justice League kind of stuff. Um, who's got the, the right skill set that, that balances someone else's skill set and then can really bring the best out in each individual person. Yeah, perfect. Those are great examples of some wonderful traits to have, uh, for sure. Well, I do again want to thank you both for being on the podcast today and for your insights into influenza and sharing with us your knowledge and experience. Uh, for our listeners, again, this is Dr. Marie Colhane, who is part of the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Jeremy Pittman, who's with Smithfield. Thank you both for your time today. Great. Thanks so much. You have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.